before we, and you may be seated. Again, thank you for doing that. I recognize it's awkward, and so I'm going to encourage you, hang on with us. We've got a few more weeks of doing this, but nonetheless, it is the most wonderful kind of awkward that a church could persist in, right? This is, uh, again, if you are a newcomer particularly, you recognize that, that this uh, is, uh, also is maybe especially awkward, but you're going to see in this church that we just lean into it. We lean into the fact that, again, um, we, uh, again, are, we don't take ourselves very seriously, but we take the gospel and we take God very seriously in this place. And so, and I, I hope, I just want to remind you do, you, do you believe that actually prayer matters? Do you believe that it actually is powerful? Now, we don't twist the arm of God, but do you believe in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus tells us how to pray, he says, pray first our Father who is in heaven. What does that imply? That we have a good Father who is everything that we wish our fathers were, everything that the best in our fathers pointed to, and has nothing of their faults. He loves, is affectionate, is for you. If you belong to him in faith. And he's also a father in heaven, which means he's never limited. He's never been wringing his hands. He's never panicked. He's never said, oh no, or faced his lack, or been too busy with something else. He is a God who is enthroned over our circumstances. And that's good news for us, friends. And do you believe that God, when his people pray, does mighty things? So, I want to invite up next uh, Noah to uh, lead us in our scripture um, today. But if you, uh, again, do not have, if you have a Bible, please bring it out. That's one of the best things you could do is bring a Bible to church. But we also have Bibles for you, which are under your seats. And those Bibles, again, you can take as a gift to you or for anyone else that you know who could use a Bible. I heard a story again from one of your fellow members here who... And it'll be Exodus 2, 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took it as wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was fi a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for a basket, for, for a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed, dubbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe the river. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and took it. she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And daughter... Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So she went and called the child's mother. So Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you for your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. I, uh, before I get started this morning in Exodus chapter 2, um, I, if you don't know Noah, I encourage you to get to know him. Um, he has uh, been a pastoral intern with us, uh, was over the summer, and is now into this coming year. Has moved here, living with the Babs, uh, because he loves you, and he wants to explore whether God would have him 
uh, be a servant of the gospel, minister of the gospel in a local church, and uh, what could be a better place for him to do to explore that than here, and uh, nonetheless, he serves you so faithfully in the background. He is also a pastoral assistant for me, and so, no, I'm just really glad that God brought you here. Um, you are a gift to our church. You're a good friend to me, and we're very grateful that you are here. Um, but if you would, keep your Bibles open still, again, to Exodus chapter 2. We're continuing our series in an Old Testament book that you may be unfamiliar with, uh, the book of Exodus, um, Exodus particularly chapters 1 through 15, which we will be going through during the spring. And we have titled this series, I've called it Drawn Out. We'll look at the second part of Exodus next year, actually. We'll take a break after that, and next year we'll do the Drawn To is the second part. Drawn Out and then Drawn To, thinking particularly about the lengths that God goes to and has gone to to draw his people out of bondage so that he might draw them to himself. We're going to see this idea of drawn out throughout the book of Exodus, particularly these chapters, but the idea really originates here in this passage that we just read. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, where we're going to be today. In fact, this passage is where we find, uh, again, Moses named. This is the story about his birth and some of the crazy circumstances surrounding it. But Moses' name actually means drawn out. See, the rescuer, the one who is recognized as the rescuer of Israel in many ways, had to first be rescued himself. The one who would lead a weak and vulnerable people was once as weak and vulnerable, not just as an infant, but an infant who had the sentence of death upon him. The one who then led Israel through the famous walls of water, had to first be drawn out of the water himself. But again, before we get too far ahead of ourselves and look at the passage, uh, the circumstances in this passage, we need to say, are some of the most wonderful and ironic events in the entire Bible, which is a relief. If you were here last week, I think we can all say that Exodus chapter 1 is fairly discouraging. It's a very, very difficult passage, a very honest passage about the ugly realities of injustice and evil in our world, which I wish we could say were limited to the nation of Egypt, but continue to persist. These verses are a wonderful relief, but become also enormously important for us to understand the purposes of God, especially in our own suffering. We're going to examine uh, this passage um, three in three parts. We're going to look at it first in what is working against us. Second, we're going to look at what, who is working for us. And third, what difference this perspective makes. So what is working against us, who is working for us, and what difference this perspective makes. You ready? Let's start with the first, what is working against us. And if you would, turn to your Bibles, look at verses 1 and 2, which I think will come, uh, I don't, yeah, uh, verses 1 through 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. Now if we were just to helicopter in on this passage at this point and start there, we might very much misunderstand the tone of these events. 
after all begins with two, uh, we have to assume young Hebrew parents receiving the kind of news every parent would be bursting to share. In fact, I remember with each of our four kids, each time my girls and boys were born, I remember wanting to tell the whole world about it, counting down the moments to when I, 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 okay, I, you ever, I don't know if you're, if you, if you uh, experienced this, if you are a parent, but you have, there's certain people you have to tell first, and then, but then eventually you can finally, like, break loose the news to everyone. There's always that one person you forgot who's offended they found out on Facebook instead, regardless, and that's not what this is about. But nonetheless, like, a parent is bursting to share the good news that a child has been born, except for Every Hebrew parent, of course, who receives the words that no Hebrew parent actually wanted to hear. It's a boy. It would have meant something entirely different. Instead of a words of joy and relief, to finally have a healthy baby in, that is brought into the world. On the outside, it is, these words meant just the opposite, actually. Of course, to understand this, we have to back up and set the stage a little bit. After all, the events here couldn't really be much worse. Pharaoh has opted for his own final solution to the Hebrew problem, authorizing the execution of every newborn male born to the slaves, first by trying to coerce them, trying to coerce specifically their own labor and delivery nurses into doing murder on his behalf, probably as an attempt to keep his own hands clean, to hide what he was up to. But then when this failed, due to the remarkable courage of these midwives, Shipra and, Pu- and, uh, and Pu- uh, sorry, Pua, the uh, Pharaoh went, well, he, he went public. He took the gloves off, if you will. He called for then, as it says in verse 22 of chapter 1, every son born to those Hebrews must be cast, or literally, you could say, flung or shed into the Nile. Like you might cast off a dirty garment or a piece of garbage. Pharaoh cast these precious young boys, or authorized their casting to be drowned in the river. The events are almost inconceivable. I realize, and even putting it that way, it's hard for us to emotionally wrap our minds around how evil this would have been. Yet, if you survey some of the genocides that have taken place throughout history, the mass murderers of human beings, it's actually not hard to imagine how even Pharaoh might have justified this. Just like the Rwandans who called for the extermination of Tutsi cockroaches. That's in this last century. Or Hitler calling for his own final solution to the Jewish question. Pharaoh would have likely played on national fear and systemic prejudice, which had become national policy probably for Pharaoh after Pharaoh after Pharaoh, and may have argued that this Hebrews, these Hebrews, these troublemakers, these threats to his regime, to the Egyptian way of life, that they had left him no option. He tried everything else to keep them under his control, and still they had the gall to thrive and reproduce and grow in strength. Perhaps there was no greater threat in the Egyptian mind than those Hebrew slaves who they desperately needed to get under their control. And what else could he do 
but opt for a cleaner and perhaps more direct solution than simply the brutal work that he subjected them to as slaves. And he had his own people to think about. But we have to ask, why the Nile? Why did he choose this path? Why did he choose to toss these infants? First, because uh, it, we have to say, as strange and ugly as it sounds, it would have been convenient. The Nile was never far from the people of Egypt. It was the source of the life and economy. It was the center of their civilization, which is, we're going to return in uh, some of the plagues and some of its significance and the judgment on the Nile, but also because it may have seemed cleaner, less messy than bloodshed, to hand these babies over to the Nile River. After all, in Egypt, they considered the Nile to be a god, to be the giver and taker of life, and for perhaps in handing these babies over to this giver and taker of life, they could have justified it as the Nile doing with these infants as it saw fit. If they drowned, they drowned. Who are they to argue with the gods? I realize it's ugly, but whether it's the Nazis or the Egyptians, I think we need to say that they're not uniquely evil. Some of that ugliness can actually still be stoked in our own hearts. Which brings us to verse 1, as everything then zooms in after this horrific edict on one of the slaves, specifically on a young Hebrew mother, or a Hebrew mother who's uh, received the news that every Jewish family, again, would now dread to hear, it is a boy. Can you imagine how afraid uh, the woman that we will soon know as Yohebed, who is unnamed at this point, can you imagine, again, she knew ev what the Egyptians were capable of, every Hebrew had seen for now centuries, how far they would go. This woman whose name, again, we are going to look at later, is unnamed here, as if to emphasize just how small and insignificant she would appear compared to the strength of the Egyptian might. And again, do you, can you imagine not only how afraid she would have felt, but how alone? Do you notice that after verse 1, her husband isn't mentioned at all? Now again, he may have been actively involved in the events. He may have been taken away from the home as part of his slave labor. After all, these duties, these responsibilities still were weighing upon these, their shoulders. There is no break for these slaves. What choice, though, nonetheless, did this leave her alone, perhaps, she wanted to keep her family alive, let alone herself. We know that she at least had two other children. What other choice did she have than to perhaps hand her child over? Verse 2, though, tells us that when she saw her son was a fine child, she decided to hide him. Now, what in the world does that mean? That he, as if he popped out ugly, she would have, no, that's not what this is about. What does it mean that he was a fine child? It means that simply he was a healthy child, pops possibly. But the phrase something reads actually something like uh, in, the, uh, in the Hebrew, uh, when she saw that her son was good, which actually is intentionally uh, supposed to sound a lot like Genesis 1:31, when God looks upon all he had made and he said and he saw that it was very good. This woman, in other words, 
the phrase probably means that she simply loved her child, saw this child that her and her husband had made and wanted desperately to keep him safe, only wanted good things for him, longed to keep him, and would do anything required of her to do so. Now, when I read in the next few verses how she somehow kept the child a secret for three months, uh, I I have to think of uh, a movie that has come out quite recently called The Quiet Place. Not that I necessarily recommend this movie, but it's kind of like a horror movie. But here's here's the movie's premise, in which the main character, one of the big events and tensions of it is she gives birth to a child, and her and her husband need to keep this child not only secret but silent, as there are monsters who only see by hearing and are drawn to her, drawn to anyone, by even the slightest whisper. As a parent, it's a terrifying movie. I just think about my own children, even as it's very sci-fi. But you have to imagine how even more intense than, the, than a movie can capture these events would have been for this mom. Every cry would have to be stifled. Every whimper would make your heart stop, wondering, is this it? Are we going to finally be found out? The older he grew, the stronger, of course, his lungs would have gotten. You, again, are a parent. You remember when your child all of a sudden got their lungs? The harder than it would have been to keep him safe. Can you imagine her fear waiting for the day when the monsters would finally come and take him away? And when she could hide him no longer, in verse 3, As it puts it, she walked down to that vile, life-stealing river to place her own baby. Not in the water, though, but in in a concealed basket, made waterproof through the mixture of asphalt and tar, made, again, uh, able to float in safety among the reeds. The word, actually, for this basket is the same word for ark, Just as the ark which once delivered Noah, this now little ark, she prayed, might now deliver her son. Hidden in the bulrushes, out of earshot of most that are passing by, it's possible that she intended to go back for him. Perhaps after the soldiers had made their rounds through her village, who may have seen her go down to the river with her baby, assuming she had done the unthinkable. Perhaps that's why his sister now stands at a distance. Perhaps she was stationed there by her own mom under strict instructions not to look conspicuous but to keep the baby safe. Regardless, there his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. The whole plan is just desperate, isn't it? You read it and you have to think about how crazy all of it is and how bound to fail it surely will be. It seems just delaying the inevitable. But what else could they do? Friends, the circumstances again here could not be more horrible or more desperate, and hopefully, I hope you have never faced a decision like Yohebed and Miriam are facing, but still, I wonder if we can at least relate a little bit. Have you ever faced circumstances where there seem to be no good options in front of you? Times in which you have done all that you know to do, maybe more, and you still can't see a way forward. No way to preserve even the thing that you love most. We respond in a variety of different ways in our lives to preserve our lives and to preserve the things we love. Working 
just to keep our lives predictable and free of risk. But none of us can perfectly control our lives, no matter how much we work and worry. And sometimes the unthinkable happens, and all the plans go to rot. Sometimes you are only left with what seems to be bad options and no way forward. Still, we have to wonder, where is God in all of this? In fact, it's circumstances like this that have caused many to wonder if God cares, or even if God exists at all. After all, if God really is sovereign, in control, all-powerful over the world, and is also good and just, then how can something as evil as this exist? How could something like this ever happen, let alone for decades? Let alone when it gets personal in your own life. As it's often put by some, and what's commonly articulated as the problem of evil, either God, if God is sovereign, I'm sorry, if evil exists, then God must not actually be good or powerful. Perhaps he doesn't even exist at all. One of the authors who's reflected on this extensively, this problem of evil, is named, uh, sorry, Elie Wiesel, who uh, experienced the Holocaust firsthand, and in his book, Night, he describes his first night in a Nazi death camp. That first night, he wrote, turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. As he looked at the furnaces, turning human beings into what he said are, were reeds of smoke. He said the fires of those furnaces utterly destroyed his faith in God. Timothy Keller, who summarizes this example in his book, Walking with God in Pain and Suffering, goes on, quoting from the book, again in Eli's words, Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever, Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. I'm not going to pretend that this uh, problem isn't widely felt or that it doesn't pose a genuine challenge to faith. The more aware, more news we get, the more aware we are of this, the reality of suffering around the world, some of which we can't even comprehend. I'm not going to pretend that I can give you an all-satisfying answer in the short time that we have, but there are a few things that we must say, and I think this passage would lead us to say as well, some comfort it does give us. One, that even as the problem of evil does pose a challenge to God's existence, it's not actually all that clear how you can actually call something evil without God's existence. How can we really be certain what evil is without some standard or source of goodness to compare it to? Let alone why every human life is valuable and worth protecting. That is commonly assumed, but impossible to ground if there is not an author of life who demands that we protect the life that he has made. If the universe really is without meaning, and we really are only animals caught in a giant survival match of the fittest, we might say that we don't like atrocities like this, we don't like the genocides of, suffer 
of, of, of history, and we hope they never come to us, but can we really call them evil? It was that realization that actually shocked C.S. Lewis enough to begin to doubt his own atheism. If you're, if you're not familiar with his story, he was once, he was long an atheist, a very committed atheist, and it was actually the realization that there was no possibility to ground evil apart from a good God that caused him to unravel his own doubts. But second, and this is actually the most important thing, that, and the, the thing that gets to actually the very heart of our passage, and that's, let me ask it as a question. It's often said, again, that there are only two options. That either God is not good and powerful, as we thought he was, or he doesn't exist at all. That's the two options it's often said that we are left with. If suffering exists, either God is uglier than we thought he was, or he doesn't even exist at all. But are those really the only two options? Is there a third? After all, there are those who saw events like the Holocaust, like Eli Wiesel, Eli Wiesel saw, and did not find that it weakened their faith, but strengthened it. Are they simply blind or unaffected by the harsh realities that are around them? Or are they aware of something else? Are they aware of one crystal clear fact, as J.R.R. Tolkien puts it, are they aware of a light that remains when all other lights go out in the midst of incomprehensible, gut-wrenching evil? Is there another option? Is it possible that God is up to more than I can see? This leads to our second point, who is working for us? Now, looking back to our passage in verse 5, we shift from a mother and a sister I mean, sorry, not a mother and a sister, to the sister, again, who is perhaps stationed at a distance by her mom to keep an eye on her son while she worked to convince the soldiers that her son had already been dealt with. You can imagine how difficult it would have been for Miriam. She was probably uh, elementary age, somewhere between 6 and 12 years old at this point. You can imagine how hard it was for her hearing her brother cry out not to wade out into the river and soothe him in the basket just hoping, again, that he was far enough out of earshot that he wouldn't be discovered. But then it goes from bad to worse, doesn't it? As who should show up but another Egyptian and her attendants that come down to the river here of all places, and not just any Egyptian, but the daughter of the king, of their own oppressor, of the pharaoh who had called for her brother's death. I think some of us imagine Miriam was just hoping that Moses would be discovered, rejoicing that when the women, woman finally lifts the lid, again he's found and she can pass him off. You, we can assume that Miriam knew more about what would happen than she did in these circumstances. The whole thing likely would have been more terrifying, since for a couple of centuries at least, it had been national policy to mistrust and abuse these Hebrew slaves, to see them as expendable labor at best and a dangerous threat at worst. That's all they had experienced. And now one of the royals had stumbled upon their family's desperate, rebellious plan. Forget what you know about what comes next. The whole thing could not have us more on the edge of our seats if we're reading along with these events. As we wonder with Miriam what's going to happen next. Verse 6, And when she opened it, 
and she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Think about how differently this could have all gone. She didn't say, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Sound the alarm. She instead, Moses perhaps thinking back on how his own adoptive mother would have told the story for years later, she felt pity the moment she saw him. She fell in love with him. As the, as, uh, literally it means that she felt soft toward him. I, as a brother of uh, two uh, adopted sisters, I have experienced this myself, and I know my parents know it even more firsthand the moment they saw their new kids, knew, and knew that these daughters would be theirs. She decided not just to spare him, but to call him her own. She calls him Moses, which in Hebrew does mean drawn out. But some have wondered in Egyptian, again comparing it, may have also meant son. She makes a slave her son, offering him not just all a mother could offer him, but a mother who was in the palace of the king. Commentator uh, Leland Riken points out that from the time of Thutmose III, Pharaoh who lived in the middle of the 15th century BC, we find from his time that it was customary for foreign-born princes to be reared and educated in the Egyptian court. These princes were called the children of the nursery. And as a child of the nursery, Moses would have been trained in linguistics, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, music, medicine, law, and the fine art of diplomacy. We're going to come back to this. Again, all of the things now Moses is swept into, how much his story has changed, but she could not take this baby yet. After all, she needed a wet nurse to breastfeed the baby. And due to the quick thinking of his sister, again, she's remarkable. Uh, who should that wet, wet nurse be but his own mother? You have to wonder how difficult it would have been for Miriam not to sound breathless and panicky and flustered in all of this, but to casually say, uh, shall I go call a nurse for you? You're going to need someone to breastfeed that child. I think I have one or two options in mind. John Durham puts it this way. Commentator says, uh, Moses is spared by being cast into the very Nile that was to drown him, is treated with maternal kindness by the daughter of the very king who had condemned him and to whose descendants he would become a nemesis, and is assigned as a responsibility with pay to the one woman in all the world who most wanted the best for him, his own mother. Remarkable, ironic. The words are too, they just fall too short of what has happened here. They don't feel strong enough to communicate. At, at one level, we just need to marvel again at the individuals at play here uh, in Moses' rescue, particularly all of the women, uh, Yochebed, Miriam, and Pharaoh's daughter, not to mention the midwives in chapter one. Notice the main characters in these first two chapters through whom God is working and who are sparing life are women. You know, for how often Christianity in the Bible is labeled as being anti-woman, I have to tell you, it is very much the opposite. So much, the most dignifying pictures, the, most, the greatest examples of faith we have throughout the Bible are women. But of course, the great, play, great player in all of these events is the one who isn't mentioned. 
God himself, who is doing more than anyone could possibly imagine. The first thing he, we need to learn about God and we need to see here is that the promise or the assurance that God will, in the end, satisfy every desire. God will satisfy every desire. First, first I want us to notice, again, this desperate mother, a mother who was preparing herself for the worst, who only saw unthinkable options in front of her, who receives now her son back again. The son she most longed for and had handed over, only now to have him with no more hiding. She has gained back the very thing she, shot, she thought she lost, and now no one could touch her. No one could touch him again. She would have him as her own, yes, only for three to four years, but still she would have him and know that her child would be safe. Do you believe, friends, that God not only saves, as incredible as it is, he satisfies? That God not only knows your most desperate desires, but delights to satisfy them. Now, I need to clarify, of course, this doesn't mean that life will be all we dreamed or hoped it will be. It, I don't mean to, in, to say that life isn't full of loss and disappointment and broken dreams. The Bible is very honest about it. After all, Yochebed will still have to give up her own child. Do you think she shed some tears that day? However, these events foreshadow something that Christians have held on to throughout the twists and turns of history. There is coming a day when the lost things will be restored. Every ache of longing and broken spirit will be satisfied. A day is coming when everything sad, again, to quote from Lord of the Rings, because I can't help it, Everything sad will become untrue. One of the songs we have started to sing here puts it this way. It's one of my wife's favorites. We will not be burned by the fire. He is the Lord our God. We are not consumed by the flood. Upheld, protected, gathered up. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. I'm longing for that day. Do you know the satisfaction actually throughout the scriptures, strangely enough, is actually available, is tasted right now for those who would hope in Jesus? Just think, why is it that Jesus calls himself the living water? and the bread of life. It's because our longings, our soul-level hunger, hunger and thirst can only and will only be satisfied in him. Augustine of Hippo puts it this way, speaking to God. God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. This is why Peter can comfort his readers in 1 Peter chapter 1 that sufferings are only for a little while. And Paul can refer to his own suffering in this life as light and momentary. Because they know their future is bright and certain, and even now they can taste the satisfaction of it. It doesn't make anything that we experience less hard or ugly. But there is a hope that remains. 
something else that is true and even more true than our circumstances. Ironically, in fact, it is only through suffering sometimes that we come to taste and see that the Lord is our good. Friend, I don't know what you are going through, but do you believe that whatever evils and sufferings and losses you are facing, God not only cares for you, but longs to satisfy you? That whatever he is up to, he is up for your joy. He is after your best in a way that when we see him face to face, we will agree with him that he was indeed good on the cross. That doesn't make, again, what you are going through necessarily good, let alone easy, but the story is not over. And even as only God could suffer, I, su I mean, sir, could satisfy the brokenhearted, he has and he will. There's something else we need to see here about God's work, though, something that should reassure us again of his purposes, even in suffering, not just that God will satisfy every desire, but God will work evil against itself. God will work even evil against itself. Think of all the education, after all, and privilege that now was afforded to Moses. I've mentioned some of it. Think about, nonetheless, all that he was uniquely trained and qualified for. What is it? As Riken puts it, Leland Riken again, Moses was being trained for Pharaoh's overthrow right under Pharaoh's own nose. Ironic, isn't it, that the child who had been sentenced to death and destruction would not only become the instrument of Pharaoh's own destruction— but the means by which all of Israel would escape now this same sentence, that would escape even from Egypt itself. Again, this can't only be coincidental. It can't just be remarkable. We have to recognize that behind all of these events, in events intentionally assumed by the author is the hidden hand of God. Yes, hidden, but the hand of God nonetheless, who is in the midst of great evil, working that evil against itself. Isn't that an incredible comfort that God doesn't turn a blind eye to injustice and oppression? He doesn't turn a blind eye to abuse. He doesn't call it good. But isn't it a comfort that God right now is working to turn oppression and racism and exploitation and greed and violence against itself, making use of evil without calling it good in order to undo evil itself. What gives Christians an even greater assurance of this hope isn't, uh, isn't blind faith or merely a resilient optimism. What gives Christians reassurance that this is true isn't even the events that we see here themselves as much as what these events point to. After all, in the book of Matthew, we have to reflect, we read of another king, one who is as evil and as desperate as Pharaoh, named Herod, who in order to protect his own power, authorizes another genocide of Hebrew boys, only this time, from the little town of Bethlehem. And who should survive it? But a better savior. 
who not only shared our condition, experiencing every ounce of vulnerability and injustice that we have, but who is preserved by his Father, a sovereign God, who has both hands on the driving wheel of history. In fact, this infant, this newborn king, would intentionally rescue his people by, in a sense, being drowned or destroyed by his enemies. Put to his own death, much to his enemies' glee. On that day, his enemies thought they had won, thought they had succeeded. Only in the great irony that only God could write, he used their evil to undo evil itself. That is the reassurance that we can trust our God in dark and difficult times, that God is doing more than we could ask or imagine. Number three, this leads then to the difference this perspective makes and where I want to conclude this morning. Again, friends, all theology, everything, again, theology just means what we believe about God has practical implications. Why does all of this matter? And I, I do hope that going out of this that you find great comfort. I don't, if you don't, again, I don't know what you've experienced or are experiencing right now. I'd, love, I'd be honored if you would share some of that with me after service so I can pray with you. But I have to tell you, the kind of people who've woken up to this become radically different and changed. They become very distinct in their suffering. They stand out as Christians because they are able to navigate the brutality of the world without sorrow, without bitterness, without distraction. They can call out sin when they see it, especially when it's in themselves. They can be honest about abuse without giving trite cliches, the sun will come out tomorrow, every cloud has a silver lining. They can listen to those who are in suffering and in fear and yet can give them a hope that is real, concrete and enduring. In fact, those who wake up to this reality, I have to tell you, become some of the most humble and selfless people Instead of suffering making them bitter and jaded towards others, it drives them to others in care and compassion. It makes them, again, wonderfully compelling. After all, everyone you will ever meet will suffer. You want to stand out as a Christian, you want to have opportunities for evangelism, you want to live a kind of life that confuses people and requires a gospel explanation, suffer well. Suffer with hope. Not plastering a smile on your face, but confessing where your hope is grounded and found. Friends, we, even in these things, even as we may not be able to see a path forward, and it seems we will only lose the thing that we love the most, we can, as people who trust our God and trust him with those very things that we love the most, trusting that when we see how he has dealt with us, we will call him good. And we can obedi be obedient, even as Miriam and as Yohebed and the midwives were with the opportunities in front of us 
unsure of how it will pan out, only aware of our inability to affect change, we can be obedient and trust that our God is up to something and more than we can expect. I, uh, but I know that it's, a, it's tough for us to be so patient. It's in fact impossible. That's why we need so desperately to recall the gospel every day as our assurance. And I think it's why Paul prays that we would wake up to this love and we wake up to particularly his power. Especially in this season, friends, especially if you're a part of this church in which we are aware of our needs, we can trust our future to a good God. And I want to pray with you, Ephesians 3, verse 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Father, we do pray those pr that prayer today. We know that you are a God we can trust even when we cannot see what you are up to. We, I, I admit, just even me personally, I'd love to see some of what you're up to. I'd love to have some clues. But God, you are wiser than me. How little I'd be able to comprehend your plans. Can you give me something even better? Give all of us something better you give us the cross of Christ by which our suffering and shame are undone, even our sin, which is the great cause of all brokenness and evil in the world, our sin which needs forgiveness. And because that forgiveness was secured in the cross of Jesus Christ, we can expect that the effects of that will work into every corner of creation. Every thorn and thistle will die Every evil will be unraveled and only our God will stand over a renewed kingdom of justice and of peace forever. And we will have in him the one our hearts have longed for, the one who will satisfy our souls. Give us the persistence we need to hold fast to that today. The humility to confess our own brokenness and sin. The awareness of how to serve those who are around us without being trite or dismissive and wake us up to all that has been accomplished because our Savior lived the life that we should have, experiencing everything we, we had, died the death on our behalf so that we would only, we would know the end of all suffering and pain and rose from the dead that we might share in with him a new life, a life that begins now and lasts forever. It's for his sake we pray.